As a medical professional, you're probably consumed by your work. Because of that, you likely miss out on big opportunities to protect and grow the wealth you work so hard for. Luckily, through passive real estate investing, you can place your capital in the hands of trusted syndicators who do all the legwork while you sit back and let your money work for you. Syndicators like Ascent Equity Group. Ascent Equity Group is led by three medical professionals turned full-time real estate investors who have secured a quarter of a billion dollars in assets in just three years. And their latest opportunity, Sunrise and Chandler, is open now. Sunrise and Chandler is an exciting 177-unit value-add multifamily opportunity in the affluent city of Chandler, Arizona. This Class B asset in a Class A location was secured at a significant discount and is already cash flowing out of the gate, with 89% of the units still in need of renovation. Sunrise and Chandler is close to meeting its capital raising goal and will be closing soon. So if you'd like to learn more, visit ascentequitygroup.com forward slash best deal to schedule a call. That's A-S-C-E-N-T equitygroup.com slash best deal. This opportunity is open to accredited investors only. Are you ready for the best real estate investing advice ever? Join Joe Fairless and today's successful real estate professional as they share it with you. Let's go. A quick word from our sponsor, The Door Devil. Homeowners spend hundreds on alarm systems each year, but rarely reinforce the weakest point on the home, the doors. Bad guys know this, and that's why kick-ins are so common. Simply adding door devils virtually eliminates the home security gap. Sleep better tonight. Reinforce your doors. Visit doordevil.com and enter best ever to get an exclusive 20% discount on your purchase. Hello, best ever listeners. Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless, and I'm here with today's guest, Bill Walston. Hey, Bill, how's it going? Hey, Joe, how y'all doing? Doing well. Thanks for joining us and you know, sharing your advice with the best ever listeners. A little bit about Bill and Bill's background before he gets into a little bit more depth is he's closed on 52 multifamily deals via a master lease strategy and he's done that in the last four years and I was just talking to him right before we started recording and he said he's closing on number 53 October 1st so he's actively doing deals uh, with this master lease strategy and you know, I've personally done a master lease strategy with a large apartment community and I know the value of the strategy so I thought it would be great to get his best ever advice uh, from his personal experience. He also has a graduate degree in tax law, and as he calls himself, he's a reformed CPA. So not only with master lease strategies, but also from a tax strategy standpoint, he's got a lot of experience. So with that, Bill, can you give the best ever listeners a little bit more background on your experience? Sure, Joe. Thanks. Thanks for having me on today. Uh, yeah, I, I do consider myself a reformed CPA. My, uh, as you said, my undergraduate degree is in accounting and finance. My uh, graduate degree is in tax law. Uh, I passed the CPA exam and opened up an accounting practice after I did my internship. It didn't take me long to find out I'm not a very good employee, uh, so I hung out my own shingle. And 
my early investors or early clients happened to be real estate investors. Uh, you know, they, they just kind of gravitated toward me from word of mouth, which I thought was really cool. But that that was who I did most of my tax planning, my tax strategy with. And it didn't take very long to realize that the profits were on the other side of the desk. And so I sold my practice out to my partner and went into real estate investing uh, full time over two decades ago. I started out with subject to and lease option strategies. I've always, always been a big fan of creative real estate investing because basically I hate banks. Uh, when I when I got started, it was back in the very early 80s, and a lot of your listeners may not even been around then. But we were we were having uh, interest rates up to 18 and 21 percent. And that was just outrageous. And so that's that's really when a lot of creative strategies uh, began to blossom. And I took full advantage of that. And as you said, that brings me to today. In the last four years, I have done master lease option investing. And like you, I do apartment complexes, multi multifamily units, not large ones because I just don't find those in my neck of the woods. Seems like we have 10 units, 14 units, 18 units, and then we jump into the hundreds of units. So my niche is really between, uh, I'd say between 10 and, and 50 units. The largest one is the one that you just mentioned uh, that I'm closing on October uh, 1st. That's a 44 unit over in North Carolina. Uh, and there we are. That's, that's where we are today. You alluded to doing creative financing whenever the interest rates were crazy high in yes. the 80s. Yep. So I imagine that you've done a lot of different types of creative financing in the past in addition to master lease options. Yes. With that being said, how did you choose master lease options now to start focusing on? Oh, sure. Cool. Uh, I think like all real estate investors, we get bitten by that commercial real estate bug. Right. And I was running into the same problems everybody else was. You have tremendously large down payments. uh, And to do those, you either have to to deal with banks, which I still hate to this day, or bring it or bring in partners. But I've been looking for ways that I could kind of merge the types of strategies that I was already doing and move it over to the commercial side. And master lease options was that vehicle. I do a lot of, as I said, a lot of lease option strategies uh, with single family residences. And I knew there had to be a way just kind of to blend that in with the commercial and master lease. And I guess I should say master lease and option strategies seem to work the best. How do you approach a master lease option opportunity with a seller? What, What do you talk to them about? I do it a little differently than some people do. I approach every seller as a buyer. And somebody says, well, why do you use the the buyer mindset if you're actually going to structure a master lease option deal? And I'm still going to be buying the property, right? It's just the the master lease and option is going to be my strategy that I use. And so I look for motivated sellers. I don't try to go out and say, I'm going to find a master lease option deal. And the same thing's true with single family stuff. I don't look for lease option deals. I don't, and I, and I don't tell my students to look for lease option deals or a uh, flip or wholesale deal. Look for motivated sellers, find out what that motivation is, and then structure your deal around that way. And that being said, I will actually go in and make my first initial offer even to a master lease option potential 
buy as uh, a buyer, and that's a lot of times what my first letter of intent is going to be. It's going to be an offer to purchase, and usually uh, I base that on my particular investing criteria, but it starts the negotiations, and the seller, once he gets up off the floor and says, there's no way I'm taking that low offer, you know, I kind of bring it back to, well, based on the numbers that you have given me, right, I'm an investor, and based on the numbers that you have given me, this is the most that I can offer for this property. However, if we can structure the deal a little differently, I can probably come closer to your full asking price. Is that something we should talk about? That's fascinating. And and when I and usually if somebody says yes, that's something we should talk about, they've just agreed to talk to you about a creative investing strategy. They may not know it, but that's exactly what they've agreed to. And so then I'll move into uh talking about master lease option, but I don't use the term. I'll say something like, what if I could guarantee you the net operating income that you're making right now? Take over all your management headaches. You wouldn't be called in the middle of night for, with, for leaky faucets. You don't have to chase tenants down for rent. You don't have to worry about the day-to-day -day operations. Is that something that would work for you? Of course. Right? And yeah. then if they say yes, then they, in, a, in essence, have just agreed to do a master lease option with me. You hold their hand and walk them through it step by step without directly stating it so that it doesn't scare them away right. from the uncertainty of something they perhaps haven't done before, right. but in reality makes a whole lot of sense for both parties. Sure, and, and like you said, most people don't know what a master lease and option is. And if I went right in and says, well, what if I could master lease option your property or master lease and option your property, their eyes kind of like – glaze over and they have no idea what I'm talking about and it's often been said a confused mind says no. <laughs> so uh, and, and I've found that to be true. So once I changed my my way of talking to sellers, I found out that I was getting a lot more yeses than I was no's. And I know you and I kind of jumped right into this, but can you define master lease option? Oh absolutely. With a master lease and option strategy, I come in and I control the property. I love like, like what Rockefeller said, control without ownership. I control the property as the master tenant. I am the only tenant that the seller owner of the property has to, to be concerned with. And then my master lease gives me the right to sublet all the other units. And it doesn't matter whether I'm talking about an apartment complex, a strip mall, a Anything, any type of commercial property, storage units. My gosh, I've got a friend down in Florida who uh, does this with marinas. So it doesn't matter what type of property uh, I'm dealing with. If you can put a lease on it, you can probably do a master lease and option on it. So I, I take over the property as the only tenant. I do value plays and increase the net operating income, which in turn increases the value of the property. Uh, gets it cash flowing, gets it in a better position to be financed or uh, in a better position to have the interest of private investors. And then I have an option on that property as well. Uh, my minimum now is like a five-year option, and that gives me the right, not the obligation, but the right to purchase that property during the term of the option. And what are the risks involved for you as a, a master tenant the major risk, and, and I have very well-constructed contracts, so you can try to eliminate most of the risks. Uh, the major risk would be if I took over the property guaranteeing a certain net 
operating income or guaranteeing a certain rent amount, and that amount is based on the current net operating income of the property. The major risk to me is if I don't increase the rents okay, in order to get some good cash flow or if I get a lot of vacancies once I take over the property and the amount that I'm taking in as rents does not cover the guaranteed rent amount I, I've promised to the seller. That's the major risk. Yeah, and even that can be mitigated by structuring a clause in you know, in a, what we call an escape clause in the uh, lease itself. All right. So based on your experience with master lease and, and options and based on your, your tax strategy experience and uh, a whole wealth of other creative financing structures, Bill, what is your best real estate investing advice ever? My best advice is know your numbers, and that's especially true in this type of creative structure because, as I said, there is little to no risk involved, but if your numbers are not right, you can really, really screw up because basically what you're doing is you're promising a, an X amount of rent to that seller each month, and if you don't generate enough revenue to cover that rent plus what you want for your own cash flow, then you're going to be upside down on your deal and you'd be coming out of pocket in cash and Bill doesn't play that game if he can help it. I don't like to come out of pocket with any type of cash at all. So my best advice is know your numbers and I'm sure that's not surprising considering my numbers background. Whenever you're reviewing properties and you are learning the numbers so that you do purchase properly and you have the ability to pay that NOI, what are some specific things that you do that others might not think of doing or that you pay particular close attention to? I have a specific criteria, uh, investing criteria that I look for. Uh, I have my own desired cap rate, and I, I look at expense ratios. I look at the cap rate, and I don't look at debt service coverage in the same way someone, might, someone else might look at it. I treat that guaranteed payment to the seller as a debt, and I make sure that I can cover that with my debt service ratio. That makes sense. In other words, I use that as my as my debt amount, my monthly debt, and I will actually compute a debt service ratio on that to make sure that I'm getting that covered. And a lot of people don't do that. I see them teaching uh, some of the different strategies, but they don't always go in and analyze that and make sure that they've got that rental income covered every month. So you're saying the mortgage the mortgage payment plus whatever on top of the mortgage payment you're paying to the seller um, for the master lease? Okay, well, yeah, and that's that's interesting. I don't worry about his mortgage payment. Okay, that's not that usually does not come into play. And a lot of people say, well, why not? You need to make sure it's covered. Well, that's true to some respect. Okay, but remember what we're promising to the seller is the net operating income that he's getting right now. So I go back and I check to see what his past net operating income is, right? his average net operating income. Sometimes I'll go back a couple of years and see what it is, and that's what I base my <clears> – <throat> excuse me, my monthly to him is. That's what my offer to him is, his net operating income. And if it covers the mortgage, fine. If it doesn't, he'll usually come back and let me know that it doesn't cover the mortgage. Right, uh, because he's going to want that mortgage covered as well. Uh, but that's what I base my initial guaranteed income to him on. 
Do you pay the mortgage direct to the lender whenever you have you're under the master lease? You know, with a master lease, I don't. And I know we've all had that kind of ingrained in us uh, to make sure that mortgage is paid. And on a single family residence, I would always do that. If I know that there's a mortgage on a single family residence, I set up some type of escrow or something like that to make sure that it's paid before the seller gets money. I, I haven't found the need really to do that with commercial. And I'm, I'm, I'm thinking it's because you, someone who has the commercial is usually an experienced type of investor uh, or they're used to making that monthly mortgage payment. As of yet, right, there's always a first time. But as of yet, I've never really had a problem with any of my commercial property sellers making sure that that underlying mortgage is paid. Yeah, I, w- I would say that I imagine would be a risk as well where the seller – I, will, I know they're not te- technically the seller. They're technically the, I guess, master landlord. Yeah. Uh, but they don't pay the mortgage. Uh, the property then goes back to the lending institution, and right. the money that you have put into it during the years leading up to that point is basically gone because you're a tenant of the property. Correct. And that, you know, that could be a problem. You're absolutely right. That could be a risk. I have, I've never experienced a situation like that. And you can build some safeguards into your contracts. Uh, you could have a third party escrow payer where your monthly amount went to, uh, to some type of title company or escrow company. They paid the underlying loan and then forwarded the remainder amount to the seller. You can have a clause in your contract that says you have the right to see the mortgage statement every month. So there are a lot of ways that you could cover it. But I will, I will tell you, honestly, I've never had a situation in which the seller landlord in this case uh, did not pay the underlying loan. Yeah, that's that's uh, we have some of those clauses in the apartment community that I did a master lease uh, in option for where if the mortgage isn't paid, we actually make the payment directly to the lender. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if uh, for whatever reason, if we don't pay it, which it'd be ridiculous if we didn't, because then we lose out on the down payment money and all the you know time and effort and the you know principal down payment that we've been making. If right. we, for whatever reason, defaulted on that and didn't pay by a certain date of the month, then the the seller or the master tenant can quickly take over so that it doesn't go into default. So there are parameters that we've put in place and that, as you mentioned, you can put in place to safeguard against it. Oh, absolutely. And and that said, I do have one property, one of my deals, where the guaranteed amount ended up being exactly the amount of the mortgage. That's all that the seller really wanted was to cover the mortgage, and I was quite happy with that. And in that particular one, we do pay the mortgage directly only for the convenience of the the seller landlord. And that's that's actually how mine's structured as well, where right. we only pay the mortgage amount. Right. And and you know what? I, that and that's the only one that I'm aware of that we're where we're paying the actual. I mean, the actual payment is exactly the mortgage amount. So we just go ahead and pay it. And it was a kind of a atypical deal for us in the way that it was structured. So you know, that's that's one way that you could do it. And you know, like when we look at it and say, okay, we don't want to lose our down payment, so we're going to make sure that the payment's paid. Most of the time your seller looks at it too that they don't you know they don't want to lose the sale of the property and have it go back and most of these properties are not uh behind in their payments 
you know, when we take them over and stuff like that. So uh, that's why I think we haven't had the problem with the seller not making the underlying mortgage payment. And do you do you get approval from the lender on this? No. And the reason and the reason we don't is that it's it's not a sale for sure yet. You know, I mean, the the seller landlord is in exactly the same position right now that he was last year. Only now he's dealing with me as a single tenant when before he was dealing with all the other tenants. So as far as as any lender is concerned, it's still a rental property. That seller is still a landlord. So nothing has really changed. It's not like a subject to deal where ownership is changing. So there's really no need for the seller to let the lender know what's going on. Got it. I I do know that in the contract that I'm doing, and perhaps because it's a you know 168-unit community, that there was something in the lending document that stated if it actually called out uh, something similar to a, a master lease, if that's put on the property, then the lender needs to know. Um, that actually delayed my closing two months, but I want I chose to delay it bef- to make sure we got it in writing from the lender cool. that they were okay with it. And after yeah. we got it from the lender in writing, then we could we went ahead and closed uh, the transaction. And it was a very simple approval process uh, where they just asked us some a few questions. It was not have you know we would, we did not have to go through you know what you typically would have to go through to get approved by a lender. It was simply a a phone call and uh, some really a conversation uh, right. because ultimately the entity or the seller is still responsible for making that payment in Correct. the lender's eyes. So Correct. there's there's really no risk from the lender uh, because they think well if the seller um, you know new new partner doesn't pull through on their end of the deal, then I'll just go after the seller like I would normally. And right. so they know that the seller doesn't want anything you know, bad to happen either. Right. And it could be, uh, as you said, it's, it sounds like it's simply just a notification process, right? And that may be too. You, you said you were doing like 160-some units. Is that right? Yeah, 168 units. Yep. So it could be that that might have been uh, something that the lender would anticipate would happen, especially is it a New York bank that is no, that was the lender? No, it's an insurance company. Okay, insurance company that's the lender. Uh, because I started to say, you know, you wouldn't believe how typical a master lease and option deal is in New York. A lot of people don't realize the Empire State Building was under a master lease agreement for years. Right. Yep. Yeah, so uh, it you know that I think that happened may have happened more in that area uh, than than down here as we say in in the south <laughs> in my in my in my particular area. Uh, so there really isn't a notification, and that's one of the things that we were concerned about when we first got started with this because you know with a subject to deal there really should be a lot of notification. But since this is not a sale, there's no transfer of the of the um, the legal transfer of title or anything like that. There's no sale, and, the, and a lender doesn't have to be notified. They uh, would find out, though, if you were making the payment directly. For instance, we did let the, no, the bank know in that one situation where we were making the mortgage payment directly to the lender. We sent a letter and said that we would be making the mortgage payment from then on out. 
All right, Bill, are you ready for the best ever lightning round? I think we are ready for the best ever lightning round. All right, let's do it. Best ever book that you've read. Usually I would answer the last one. <laughs> I'm a voracious reader. Right now it's the the 12-week year by Brian Moran. Absolutely wonderful. What's it about? That is about how to do your planning and structuring of your uh, business goals and procedures in 12 chunks and have a 12-week year. And, and you look at your weeks as your months, so you look at the short-term period and you focus specifically on a few concrete goals. Best ever personal growth experience and what you've learned from it? I would say deciding that I wanted to become a real estate investor. That was a real big learning curve for me, and I have learned so much over the years about creative strategies and what motivates sellers, and uh, you find out that it's not always the money that's motivating to them, and you've got to find out what that motivation is uh, in order to be able to be the problem solver, and if you come in as a problem solver, you close a lot more deals. Best ever success habit you practice? Uh, the old early to rise type deal, I think. I usually get up between 4.30 and 5 in the morning nearly every day, and I get a lot, of, a lot more accomplished in those first two or three hours in the morning than most people do all day long. Doesn't it feel so good whenever you have half of a day's worth of stuff accomplished and it's 9 a.m.? Oh, absolutely, and it lets me do what I want to do for the rest of the day, but I'm – you know, some of us always, especially people who work from home like I do, I structure my business so I can work from anywhere. It seems like we always have work that we could be doing, so you kind of have to learn to stop sometimes. But the early to rise, absolutely. I love love that idea of having so much accomplished early in the day. What time do you go to bed? I am usually in bed by 12 or 1. My goodness. Yeah. You, don't, you don't get much sleep. I'm not a – yeah, I've always been that way for some reason. Uh, you know, People talk about burning the candle at both ends, and uh, I, I guess I tend to do that. But a lot of times, yeah, I'm up till 12 or 1 doing something, you know, either with my pups or you know, relaxing because I work during the day. Best ever deal that you've done? Uh, best ever deal that I've done – again, you know, that's almost like my book's the last one. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think the most interesting deal that I have done was a master lease option deal that I put that I did in Nashville, Tennessee. It was a couple that was divorcing, and I didn't find that out until we got like way through the deal uh, or got really into the negotiations of it. But we were getting ready to close the deal, and the day we were getting ready to close, of course, we needed the, the uh, soon-to-be ex-wife's signature. And she didn't want to close. And you know, I was it was a master lease option deal. The husband had already signed. Everybody was trying to get the wife to close. We could not get her to close. And finally, I I don't know why I came up with this. And I just looked at her and I said, you know, you do realize that this property is not going to sell in the condition that it's in right now. And so what we want to do is take it over, get the cash flow going, so that we can exercise our option to take the property out. She says, well, I know that, but I just don't think I want to sign these papers. And I said, well, you also know that if you do sign, you won't have to deal with your ex anymore during the next five years. <laughs> Where do I sign? 
Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it it that's the only thing it took. Again, you know, you almost go back to find out what the motivation is. Right. It's her motivation, and I thought, man, I should have just learned this like yesterday because it actually delayed our closing by by twenty four hours almost <laughs> because <laughs> she did not want to sign. So that was one of my most interesting deals, I think. Best ever quote. Uh, my best ever quote would be one by Jim Rohn, and it really kind of ties into my 12-week yearbook. It's the one that either you run the day or the day runs you. I always start my day knowing exactly what I need to get accomplished during that day. It makes my day so much better. Uh, does that mean that I'm going to get either everything done that day or that nothing's not going to jump up in my face and need to be taken care of? Absolutely not. But it still amazes me the number of people that I say, you know, I ask, you know, when do you plan your day out? And they don't. You know, and so either you plan your day uh, by design or by default. One way or the other, it's going to happen. Yeah, I've I've experienced that firsthand where I didn't have a to-do list, and the day the day ran me. Whereas right. now I've got uh, every Sunday I list out not only the next day's goals but my weekly goals, yep. so that I know ultimately what is my north star, what am I accomplishing for the week and then that helps me determine how to structure each of my days absolutely what's the best ever place to reach you bill uh the best ever place to reach me is bill at billwalston.com great and is there anything else you'd like to add uh no i think that about covers it joe it's been great chatting with you oh i I learned a lot. I mean, I, I love the approach that you take with sellers when you initially offer them a deal uh, or an offer price that structurally is something familiar to them, but it's a little bit lower or a lot lower right. than what they're looking for. At least that gets the conversation going, and then you come in with the, well, if I could guarantee you the NOI you're getting – take all your management headaches away, is that something that would be of interest to you? I, I love that approach, and I think those two steps can help a lot of the best ever listeners get started in closing more deals. Absolutely, and it works for single-family stuff too. <laughs> all right, well, thank you so much, Bill. Really appreciate you being on the show and sharing your advice with the best ever listeners. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay, bye. Hey you, best ever listener, do you want more? Then head to JoeFairless.com, where there are tons of free videos, templates, and content to help you get deals done. And if you want Joe to personally help you reach your goals, then go to the Work With Joe tab on JoeFairless.com and apply to, well, Work With Joe.